Matthew 24, 1 through 14. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Now we've pointed out in last week's message that the Lord Jesus is leaving the temple grounds, and he's just pronounced a series of woes or curses upon the leaders of Israel for their failure to recognize him as the Messiah and their failure to bring others to him as the Messiah. Instead, they've led the people astray. And so he issues a lament over Jerusalem and a lament over the temple. It's going to be desolate. It's going to be destroyed. And they will not be able to enjoy the richness of that place until they see him coming. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he's dropped before his disciples this idea that he's coming again. And he's coming at a moment in time in which he'll bring the blessing that they're longing for. But it will only happen after this desolation takes place. The ironic thing is as they're leaving, the disciples are distracted from the message he's just delivered. And they're impressed by the buildings. And they're saying, Lord, look at all these wonderful buildings. And they're showing around at all these buildings. And it appears that the Lord Jesus lets them lead him on a bit of a tour. Then after the tour is over, the Lord Jesus says this to them in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is sometime later, the disciples obviously been mulling over what he's just said, and this has not got out of their system, and they need more explanation. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And what we pointed out last week is that the disciples have put together these two notions, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah. According to the rabbinics, there was basically two ages. There was Israel and the age they were living under, under the law, and then there was going to be Israel under the coming of the Messiah. And if the temple is going to be destroyed, then this new age of the Messiah must be coming. And they bring these two together and the Lord Jesus to a large extent, and we'll have to explain this in other messages, the Lord Jesus will let these two be hanging together as he begins to explain and answer the question for them. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, and pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, or birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's what he said at the very beginning. In other words, the whole period is encased in this deception. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Your word is before us, O God. And uh, we are peering into things that the angels have wondered about. We ask for clarity by your spirit and understanding. We ask, dear God, humility in the conclusions that we reach, knowing still that these things will ultimately be most clearly unveiled to us when we will see you face to face. 
You make all things known to us, but we'll then say, oh, Christ, you knew everything. You did everything right and good. You directed us and you warned us and you called us to yourself. And, oh, God, help us to take away the, the moral of the story and learn it, press it to our hearts. Help us to live it out, the purpose for which you make these things known to us. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we've said, the Lord Jesus is leaving the temple grounds. He's just pronounced a curse upon the city. The leaders have failed to recognize him, failed to receive their Messiah, and they will be desolate until they see him coming again. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His disciples have forgotten the lesson already. They're distracted by the opulence of the temple structure and building, which has been worked on for about 50 years, and it'll be another 34 years until it's completed. The Lord Jesus pronounces to them, there's coming a time when not one stone of this temple will be standing upon another. That actually happens in 70 AD when the general Titus comes in, the Roman general Titus comes in, lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, desolates the city of Jerusalem. Last week I told you that there was close to a million people that were in the city, that about 80% of them were killed. Well, there was more than a million, but not much more than a million. And actually I was wrong because Josephus estimated that 1.1 million of them were killed during that siege. And the temple is destroyed, and it's wiped out. In 70 AD, that's just six years after its completion. They have six years to kind of revel in this glorious building and sink their hearts into it, and then it's gone, and it's destroyed. And when he announces this and pronounces this prophecy to his disciples, they certainly immediately attach the destruction of the temple to the end of the age and then to the coming that he's promised in which he will be blessed and will bring his blessing. And they want to know when these things will take place and what the sign of these things will be. And we'll have to go into this and discuss this more. But the Lord Jesus introduces to them this idea or thought that what's going to be happening, what they're going to see, are not going to be, in a sense, the sign of the immediacy of his coming, but they're just going to be the birth pangs of his coming. They're just going to be the introduction of birth pangs that will be taking place throughout a period of time until he returns. Now, one of the things I know about birth pangs, or I think I know about birth pangs is once they begin they don't stop until the baby arrives and in the prophets the birth pangs ultimately were these events that began to sequentially take place until the messiah came and brought his kingdom reign that's one of the ways in which the birth pangs is introduced there are other ways in which the birth pangs are referred to and they apply to times of judgment that were immediate within the framework of and the historical moment in which the prophets were speaking but they also were looking beyond that to the coming of the messiah And they were basically saying, here are the things that are initiated, and these things are going to keep going on, and they're just going to keep roiling about. There are going to be spasms of these birth pangs happening over and over and over again until the birth comes, until the Messiah comes. And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying to these disciples here. You're going to see these things happening over and over and over again until the Messiah comes. And then he describes to them, and he gives them a description of those things. And basically what's going to typify the time of the birth pangs before the coming of the Messiah. That's what we've read about here in these first 14 verses. These various things that are going to be taking place. These conditions that mark the period of time between his first coming and his second coming. And that is the age in which we live right now. Those are the conditions that we are experiencing right now. And so what I want to do right now is I want to direct you, though, to the conclusion of this descriptive period and what the Lord Jesus says. And so I want you to look at verse 13. There are basically two conclusions the Lord Jesus brings them to that they need to understand and recognize. And in verse 13, the first one is, it's a call to endurance. 
He who endures to the end shall be saved, we read in verse 13. What the Lord Jesus has just pointed out to him is that they're entering into and they're going to be a part of an age of tremendous adversity. The conditions that they experience will call for endurance. They're being reminded that there's a contest before them, an age that is against them, that is in opposition to their faithfulness to Christ. It introduces this age struggle and conflict and suffering and disappointment and temptations and resistance and more that they're going to be experiencing. And these conditions must be overcome by them. We are waiting ourselves for the everlasting home that the Lord Jesus has promised us. He's going to come and take us to be with him forever. But as we wait for that home, we wait in a world that is against us. It's a world in which we must struggle and suffer and experience sorrows. And we are called to endure through this time period. And the proof of a believer's salvation is ultimately in the believer's endurance. The person who has truly been born again of God has the Spirit of God working in them and bringing them forward into growth and development as Christ expresses his life through them. That person has experienced within him the faithfulness of Christ himself bringing them into faithfulness and the sign or the mark ultimately of their salvation is their perseverance through the age in which they live. So the first thing that Christ warns in giving this picture of the age, these things that they're going to have to endure through, the first things he warns about is of deception, and we'll talk about this more next week, the deception of false messiahs, and we see that in verses 4 and 5, and we mentioned last week that these false messiahs rise up out of two different regions, they rise up in the region or realm of religion, and then they rise up in the region or realm of politics and of the powers of the nations. We discussed and we talked about the fact that when we read about the Antichrist in the last days, that he's a convergence of these two things. He's a religious leader and he's a political leader. And this is where these false messiahs rise up. And I want you to understand what it is or what triggers this receptivity or this danger of being brought under the influence of false messiahs. And it's this. It's everything that happens in this age. It's all the difficulties and challenges and hardships that take place in the age in which we live because these stresses cause people to look for an easy way out or to look for an answer to their difficulties and their hardships. And as a result, they're easily prey to false teachers that give them cheap spiritual solutions for their problems or false prophets who rise up and say, I'm the political answer and I'm the one who's going to deliver an answer to the political stresses of your day and age. And the very things that are being talked about, the very challenges and the problems that will rise up during this time period, which will actually contribute to the danger of seeking solutions and answers outside of God's truth. And so in the middle of these situations, there's the danger of false teachers offering false peace, political messiahs who promise that they're the answer to the chaos. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful and watch out for the deception of this age that's brought about by the turmoil of this age. You have to go through it. Instead, you have to endure this age. And by the way, in the statement of enduring the age, the Lord Jesus is giving to his disciples no hint of a shortcut. (laughs) There's no easy ways of avoiding the difficulty that's coming before them. It's coming. It's prophesied. If we in our land have avoided, by the way, ourselves, the tribulation that the Lord Jesus is describing here, we have to realize how blessed we are in America. 
But if we go back and look through the history of the church, we recognize and we should see that these are not the normal conditions of the church and the Christian throughout the ages. The average Christian throughout the history of this age has gone through a vast array of persecution and trials and difficulties described by the Lord Jesus here. And they've also gone through periods of tremendous spasms, you might say, where these things have been intensified. Because this is an age of adversity. Look at verse 6. Some of the things that he says are taking place. These stresses that are going to bring them into the danger of this type of deception that they have to endure through. It's an age of wars and rumors of wars. It's the stress of regular conflict among the nations. Verse 7, it's an age of famines and pestilence or disease. And these things, by the way, usually follow wars and rumors of wars. They're usually politically activated more than anything else. And then in verse 7 again, it's an age where there's unsettling earthquakes that are not uncommon that come throughout the world. The whole world, we read in Romans chapter 8, that the all of creation is in travail, that it's groaning for its redemption. It's rocking and it's writhing under the pressures of sin itself and longing for its deliverer. And so earthquakes are common as well. Verse 9, it's an age of religious persecutions and martyrdoms, an age in which animosity and hatred is set against the follower of Jesus Christ, and it's to be expected. Verse 10, it's an age in which desertion of former professors of Christ from the faith come because of those persecutions and because of those martyrdoms. And they not only turn away from the faith, but then they turn against those whom they once professed the whole fellowship with. It's one of those things that should be expected as well. In other words, there's an ongoing attrition or apostasy that's taking place as well. Although there might be spasms and times in which it increases and becomes worse, you might expect that as well, the Lord Jesus is telling them. In verse 11, it's a loveless age or a self-loving age, and it's self-love that gives rise to lawlessness. What does the Lord Jesus call for in that kind of age? Endurance. You're going to have to endure these things. You need to recognize they're coming. You can't have somehow a wrong notion and a wrong expectation of what the world and what the age in which you live in is going to deliver you, that things are going to progressively get better and that you're going to come to points of higher and higher privilege and honor and blessing. No, if you're going to live godly in this life, Paul says you're going to suffer tribulation. You're going to suffer difficulty and you're to endure and you're to persevere. And the the God of this world has set his sights against you and he wants to destroy you and your faith in me and You're going to have to endure. So that's the first thing he says. Here's the second thing. It's verse 14. It reads this way. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the first thing the Lord Jesus said is this is going to be an age of contest, an age of challenge, an age of adversity to be endured. But the next thing he tells them is it's also going to be an age of conquest and victory. In fact, you can't know victory unless you know adversity. And he's telling his disciples, you're going to be victorious. You're going to have success in the mission I've given you. Our mission to share the gospel will succeed in this age, this age that's filled with strife and turmoil and difficulty. The suffering and enduring church will prevail in the midst of the darkness of the age in which it's been set. Ours is not a lost cause. It's a prevailing one. It's a hopeful one. That's the second thing you'll notice here, and it's upon that 
observation, I want to make a third notation. And by the way, these are some of the things that we said last week. And so that's in some way a little bit of a different perspective on it, but a, a review of what we just spoke about last week. Now let me add to you this idea. It will not be in spite of these conditions that we will come into victory in our mission in some wonderful way because God is sovereign and God is ruling over all things. He has determined that the message of the gospel will go forward with success from our lives in the midst of this adversity, not as an exception to it, not somehow as an ability to overcome the obstacles of it, but actually because of it. God has determined that this adversity that we will face will actually enhance our witness and that we will have victory and that our message will go forward with success to our world in the midst of that adversity and possibly because of it. The message of the Lord Jesus was given just before he and his disciples will eat their last meal before his crucifixion. And when he called his disciples, you might remember that he called them to take up their cross and follow him. Theirs was going to be a life of suffering that he is about ready now to live out before them in its fullest expression upon the cross. Come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me, he said. Take up and be ready to suffer with me. And now he's going to show them the length of suffering he's going to go to. But he also said something else to them. He promised them if they followed them that he would make them fishers of men. In other words, he promised them success in their mission. They would draw others to Christ. But it would be in the midst of all this suffering. The Christian life calls for an endurance, but through the midst of great trials and difficulties and suffering, we've been promised that in that suffering, Christ will produce from us a fragrant, powerful expression of his gospel that will prevail in the world in which we live. Let me give you a couple illustrations from scripture here. One is the story of Paul and Paul's conversion. After Paul is converted, a man by the name of Ananias is called upon by God to go and find Paul. He's directed to the exact place where Paul is, and there he's to go and minister to Paul, and Ananias knows the reputation that Paul has. Ananias knows that Paul has been going around, and he's got papers to arrest Christians, that he's been casting Christians in jails, that he's actually been consenting to their being put to death, and he reminds God that maybe this is not a good idea. God responds to Ananias and says, no, this is the man that I've chosen, and I've raised up to be a witness for me. You find it in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. And here's how the Lord responds to Ananias' concern. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And the word here is for, it's the word gar in the Greek, but the force of it in this place is because, because, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. This man is going to be used of me to bring the gospel to Gentiles, before kings, and before the nation of Israel, and it's going to be because, or for the reason, or the, the measure or means I'm going to use to make this possible is, I'm going to introduce him into a life of suffering for my name's sake. And out of that, this gospel is going to go forward. Actually, in Luke chapter 21, you have a parallel to the Olivet Discourse. You have Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse that we're studying here in Matthew chapter 24. And in Luke chapter 21, the Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples about this entrance that they're going to be making into this period of time of birth pangs and their own experience leading up to the destruction of the temple. And here's what he says in verses 12 and 13. Same idea here. Suffering produces 
the occasions or situation and circumstances that enhance the proclamation of the gospel. He says this, And they will lay your hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake. That's verse 12. Verse 13, But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. You're suffering this difficulty, this adversity. I'm going to make it work to bring about victory. I'm going to use it to enhance the mission that I've set upon you and gave you. So what I'd like to do the rest of our time here this morning is I'd like to consider a number of reasons why this would be the case. A number of the reasons why difficulty and challenges and suffering and hardship and enduring through difficulties actually enhances the witness of the gospel. And I guess the purpose of this is I'm just telling you, if you're going to follow the Lord Jesus, you're going to suffer difficulty and challenges and hardships. And yet God has a purpose in all that that's hopeful. And God has a mission before us all the same. And we are to keep our eyes on the mission. And we're to keep carrying out that mission until he returns. And we're to leave the results to him, but he's promised. And he's giving us this idea that if we'll trust him for those things, he actually will accomplish great and wonderful things. Here's one of the reasons why suffering produces an enhancement of the message of the gospel. And it's this. Number one, the suffering that a truly devoted follower of Jesus experiences while living in a fallen world brings that follower in line with the Lord Jesus' own cross. His suffering brings our lives in line with his cross. The gospel message is a message of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a message of his death in our behalf. It's a message of his suffering for your sins. That's what we tell people. Jesus died on your behalf. Jesus suffered for your sins. Jesus entered into the points of your pain and your sorrow and your fears and your defeating behavior. And he did all this on your behalf. All the misery of sin and all the misery of sin that's come upon this world. The Lord Jesus at the cross entered into it for you. And the conquest of the cross made possible because Christ bore all these things on your behalf, in your place, on the cross. And we cannot preach or underscore the conquest of the cross with our own lives if we are not willingly and rejoicefully and peacefully setting ourselves forward to suffer in this fallen world and endure it. It's as we endure that suffering and as we go through that pain and that misery that ultimately know Christ fully bore upon the cross that our message of a Savior who did this and experience this for man's sake is enhanced. And it's as we trustingly and believingly walk through these things, proclaiming this message, this message of a suffering Savior for the sake of the sins of men, that our message is somewhat substantiated by our own behavior and by our own responses to sorrow and suffering. It's as if our credibility is gained, not in our successes. Our credibility is gained in our willingness to suffer. Well, proclaiming a suffering Savior who died for the sins of the world. So that's one of the reasons. Here's a second reason. Enduring suffering highlights the hope of the gospel. Enduring suffering highlights the hope of the gospel. In Hebrews 12.2, we are told that when the Lord Jesus suffered, when he endured the shame and the misery and the suffering of the cross, that he did it for the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus went to the cross with hope in his heart. Jesus went to the cross with the hope that he would be able to give to us and bring to us his salvation. 
that he would be able to share with us the glory of the heaven that he was winning for us and earning for us by suffering in our place for our sins in order that he might give to us all his righteousness as we place our faith in him. And that it was the glory of receiving us unto himself in heaven. Sins paid for, righteousness provided, received by faith by us, brought up into his fellowship forever and ever. That joy, that glory, that hope led him to the cross. The Lord Jesus went to the misery and the pain and the suffering of the cross with hope in his heart. And that hope can also be more formally set from us to others when we set it before them in the midst of our suffering. As you suffer, you can more firmly set before others your true hope, if that is your true hope. If it's your true hope. You know what I've discovered, by the way? When people suffer, you find out what their true hope is. When they're really suffering, you find out what it is they are really hoping in. Funerals are great places to discover because they're places of suffering. They're places of sorrow. They're places of pain. They're places in which all of our ideas and all of our thoughts are being tested against the great question, the great demanding question of death itself. At funerals, you oftentimes find out what, people is, what it is that people are hoping in, and you find it out by what they talk about most. If their hope is only in this life, at a funeral, you'll discover that mostly what they talk about are memories of the past. They seem to hold on to whatever comfort can be found in the fading of good days that have gone by and now have ended, and they're trying to hold on to them and cling to them because that's where their hope lies, and that's what they'll talk about the most. Those experiences and those good old days because that's all they've got left. Maybe a good deed that they've turned that would overcome the bad things they've done. That somehow that they can gain some hope of eternity or eternal life because they were basically a good person and they've earned it by their own good works. And you'll discover at their funeral, they'll oftentimes on the casket of that person beside them lay up all the flowers and all the notations of all the good things and all the good deeds and all the wonderful character they had, hoping that if they pile it up high enough, it could overcome what they know, but they're not stating the flaws in that person's life. Because that's what they're hoping in. They're hoping in the good deeds and the righteous deeds of that man. And they'll, they'll layer it and it becomes a testimonial of the person residing in that casket. But here's a question for you. What hope did the criminal who was dying on the cross next to the Lord Jesus have? Did he have hope in this life? In the past that he had lived, in the present life that he was living, all of it was quickly fading out in the agonies of the cross. What hope did he have in the present moment? Could he conjure up and say, you know, I'll comfort myself with some good memories? What hope did he have? What did he hope or did he have of overcoming the balance of the sins in his life with his own good deeds? He knew that what he was suffering, he deserved. Actually, that was his testimony to the other thief that was dying right beside him. He said to him, our condemnation is just for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're getting what we deserve. Which, by the way, was the confession that led him to the true point of hope. But he had no hope in just this life. And he had no hope in his good deeds and his ability to overcome by his good deeds the sins that he committed in his life. He had only one hope. And it was in the one who was suffering next to him. He turned to the Lord Jesus who hung dying there next to him. And that's where he found his hope. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, who was his hope, answered and said to him, This day, this day, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. When Jesus is your hope, you speak mostly of him in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties. 
When Jesus is your true hope and the true hope of your life, he's the one you talk about the most at funerals. He's the one you honor. It's his hope, his truth, that truth that you want to signify and declare above everything else because that's where your hope lies. You might talk about the other individual, you might talk about someone that's gone before you, but only as a springboard to this greater truth, a greater wonder. Your hope, your hope is in Christ, it's in him. What you hope in is what you talk about in the midst of your suffering and pain. There is nothing sadder and more miserable than a person who meets suffering without any hope. There's nothing more pathetic than a person that meets suffering with a false hope. But there's nothing more glorious and wonderful and no pronouncement more strong and more powerful than a person who meets suffering with a living hope. And our hope is in Jesus Christ and his gospel and his life in our place. And so it's in the middle of suffering that God accentuates the glory of our hope before a world. Here's a third thing. Our suffering, enduring a strange world brings us into deeper identity with the Lord Jesus who left glory to come and serve others. In other words, as we suffer, the Lord Jesus brings us into his own life and his own mindset. You might remember that the Lord Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul declares the nature of the ministry. He says, I'm poured out like a drink offering. He's following in the train of Jesus Christ. And he lists all the ways in which he suffers as he pours out his life in service And what we notice in all of it, underscored in all of it, is an expression of the life of Jesus Christ. And it's as we go through suffering and difficulty, gladly and submissively before the Lord, enduring these things in hope, that we bring before others this confidence or this trust or this experience of the life of the Lord Jesus. And he's seen through us. He's seen through us in the midst of our sorrows. Take your Bible and go to John chapter 12 for a moment. Before going to the cross, Christ connects his cross with service, our service. He connects the cross to his own suffering and what he's about to endure, but he doesn't remain there just speaking about and alluding to his own suffering, but then he correlates it to our suffering, and as a result, the service in the midst of our suffering that we give that brings honor to him. John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. Again, this in the last week of our Lord's life before he went to the cross. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Glorified in what? In his suffering at the cross. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies... It produces much fruit. It's in this suffering and this death that he's going to unleash this tremendous fruitfulness through his ministry. That's Christ describing what's before him. I'm the grain of wheat that's going to fall into the ground and die, but I'm going to produce much fruit. But now he correlates it to our lives as well, a pattern for us to live. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am there, my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. It's only a few verses after this that the Lord Jesus will say, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And John adds that he spoke of this to refer to the death that he was going to die. But we recognize that Jesus is not simply signifying the death that he's going to die, 
but the means by which his life is lifted up before others. It's lifted up before others in suffering service. It's lifted up before others in our willingness to suffer and continue to serve along with him in the midst of our suffering. Suffering has the ability to turn us away if we receive it the right way. We do it for Christ's sake and for his honor and for his glory. It has the ability to turn us away from ourselves towards others. Towards others. We're not saved by our suffering. But we can be, and we are to expect to be made more fruitful in the midst of our suffering if we consecrate it to Christ and suffer with him and for him. Here's a fourth thing. We are calling people to faith. And it is suffering and enduring in the midst of suffering that turns our faith away from ourselves, away from others, away from human society, and to God alone. Oftentimes we count it on all kinds of other things. And what suffering really does is it strips away the points of confidence in our life. We have confidence in our own physical abilities and our own physical powers, and God lets that get stripped away from us. We have confidence in some friend or some people that are going to be there for us and always have our back. They're not there for us. They betray us and they leave us, and that's suffering. We have confidence that our system of government, which is the greatest that the world has ever known, will back us up and lead us onward into victory and all of a sudden it gets rattled and shaken and it seems to be dissipating and disappearing and suffering. God strips these things away to teach us and instruct us to lean on Him alone and to rest on Him alone and to place our faith in Him. And what does that do? That only enhances our message because our message is faith. Faith in Christ only. Faith in what He's accomplished and not what any man or what you can accomplish for yourself. Isaac Watts has his famous hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? And he asked the question, Is this vile world a friend of grace to lead me on to God? And the answer is yes. This vile world is a friend of grace to lead us on to God. Not only that, it's a friend of grace to lead others on to God as well. As we learn to turn away from our trust and our hopes in this age and in this world, in the midst of our suffering, to look to God and trust in Him and believe that He is the ground and the foundation He's the the height and the finish mark of everything that we can hope for and long for. Here's one last thing, fifth, very briefly. God uses our suffering to make us more and more holy like his son Jesus. Oh, it's difficult. It's difficult to prevail in the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're not like Jesus Christ. And so God refines us in the fires of suffering. And God disciplines us through the disciplines of suffering. And God prunes us for more fruitfulness in the midst of our sufferings. And he molds us and shapes us in the pressures of suffering so that we can be more and more conformed to the image of his son. More and more like him we become, more and more convincing is our testimony of him It enhances our witness. It enhances our witness. That we might exalt Jesus Christ above everything else and suffering, suffering, puts us in a situation and a condition where that's possible. So what I want you to see here is suffering and enduring. Verse 13, those who endure to the end shall be saved. Suffering and enduring is what is the secret, you might say. It's a part of the formula that makes verse 14 true. This gospel shall be preached in all the nations, to all the world, and then you will come. Suffering and enduring aids us in presenting our Lord Jesus to others. 
He suffered for us and he suffered for them. He knows the pain of sin. He knows their sin. We lose our capacity to proclaim the suffering Savior if we ourselves are only seeking to avoid it. We proclaim a Savior and a God who hung on the cross and knows the sorrow and suffering of sin and has had its darkness sink upon him on others' behalf. And when the Messiah comes to judge again all he will bear in his hands the marks of his suffering. The Bible says they'll look upon him whom they've pierced. He'll always bear the marks of his suffering. What ultimately led Jesus into that suffering, what made it and opened him up to that suffering was that he loved the whole world. He loved. I think the one way that we try to, above everything else, protect ourselves from suffering is by withholding our love. We have to go through the age. We have to endure the age. We don't hold tightly onto the age. But we love those in it. We love those in it. And we allow ourselves in the midst of those things to act only. The Bible says, oh, no man anything but to love him. Paul tells us that. It's in the midst of that love that we open ourselves up to suffering. To suffering. But it's in that suffering of love that we give witness to Jesus Christ It's God who knows our sin and sorrows and that saves us who we trust in. Our sufferings, our enduring, only brings us nearer and nearer to the one we proclaim who suffered in love. So we should praise him that he redeems the darkness of the age that's falling all around us to increase before this age the light of his cross and our message to the world. Praise God for that. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that the Spirit of Christ might come upon us. We've thought before these messages, we've considered how important it is to know the baptism of your Holy Spirit bringing to us the enriched presence and power and life of the Lord Jesus. Baptized by the Spirit to brilliantly shine the life of Jesus in our world, to shine it in love, and to shine it in the midst of great suffering. Lord, we pray that we would be willing, longing, even desiring like Paul to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. To fill up, as Paul says, the sufferings of his Savior in order that Christ might be more clearly known in the world in which we live. God, we don't know what's happening before us. We don't know what the age is going to bring us. But here's one thing we want more than anything else. Let this be it. Not a concession to all the failure, not a concession to all the wrong, but let this be in our hearts. God, take us where you need to take us in order that we might more brilliantly shine the gospel to a lost and dying world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.